welcome to the Caring Greatly podcast, a podcast for leaders who seek to transform healthcare with humanity. Dr. Lisa Bukovic is Senior Vice President of Clinical Operations at OB Hospitalist Group, or OBHG. She's an advocate for women's reproductive rights and believes all women should have access to quality health care. Prior to joining OBHG in 2014, she served as the Section Chief for Augusta Health Center in Virginia. In 2018, Dr. Bukovic was the recipient of an OBHG Excellence in Clinical Leadership Award. In this episode, Dr. Bukovic and I talk about the factors in obstetrics that lead to physician burnout, especially the way that clinical practice is structured so that it creates conflicts of time, attention, and clinical expertise. Dr. Bukovic advocates for a fundamental restructuring of obstetrics training and operations that encourages physicians to specialize in office care, hospital care, or surgery. She believes this will not only lead to better clinical outcomes, but also a more manageable and sustainable practice model for clinicians. Dr. Bukovic shares her own journey from burnout to a practice that sustains her passion for medicine and allows her to balance work with her other life pursuits. Dr. Lisa Bukovic is a leader who cares greatly. Welcome, Dr. Bukovic. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's great to talk with you about this. So you are an OBGYN and a hospitalist um, and with a strong focus looking at burnout and thinking about the work of uh, OBGYNs and obstetrics in general. What are the factors that you see that lead to burnout among obstetrics clinicians? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, obstetricians historically have kind of been jack of all trades, right? They're expected to see patients in the office. They're expected to perform surgeries. They're expected to do deliveries. They're expected to be on call. Um, and you add all of those things up. And if you do nothing but that for the rest of your life, you probably would be okay for a good long while, right? But the majority of people want to have a life outside of just work, right? We should um, work to live, not live to work. Right. Uh, the specialty itself does not necessarily, you know, open the door to that. And, uh, you know, add to that now the added pressures in the office of how many patients do you have to see to make sure that you can, you know, make your payroll and pay your rent and what have you. So I think a lot of docs find themselves frustrated with the care that they're providing because they just don't have the time to focus on any one thing. And so because of that, I think a lot of people hit a wall and they wind up either stepping away from medicine or, you know, um, looking to new careers, alternative careers mm -hmm. within medicine, um, which is a problem because women are not going to stop having babies, right? We need the people to take care of them. Um, and, and we're losing the people who take care of them. So and when you say losing them, I know when we talked beforehand, you're saying there are fewer people selecting obstetrics as a specialty. And then, as you said, people stepping away. Is that right? Yeah, 100% correct. So there are fewer people choosing the specialty for a number of reasons. One is work-life balance. One is the risk that's involved with, you know, delivering people's babies. Um, so there are fewer people choosing to go into it. And at the same time, on the back end, we have employers saying, well, the residents that you're training and that are coming out don't have the same training that they had you know, 20 years ago. Um, and some of that is likely the work hour restrictions that were put mm -hmm. in place. And don't mistake me, that that was vital and much right. needed and very definitely like in the best interest of patient safety. But because of it, the residents don't have the same numbers when they graduate, right? 
um, right. that, and they're used to having some protection, but that same protection is not built into private practice. So when they graduate and they're told, okay, you're going to be on call every fourth night and you have to work in the office and you have to do an OR day a week and you have to, you know, it, it starts to add up and they're not used to that workload. So, right. And I, I just want to clarify, I'm not hearing you say they need to get used to that workload. I'm hearing you say those protections need to actually translate into practice so that somebody can have a meaningful work-life balance and thrive in their profession while also perhaps having a family or pursuing hobbies or travel or whatever else it is that brings them fulfillment and joy. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. That and, and patient safety, right? I mean, right. You, those work hour restrictions were put in place for patient safety. So yeah. it's an interesting phenomenon that we haven't done the same for people <laughs> once they're out of residency, right? Um, but yeah, hundred percent. I mean, there has to be a way to be able to provide the services to the women and children and at the same time, allow people to have a life outside of work. Right. So what kinds of shifts to the work of obstetrics would change these factors? What would make it look different in your mind? What's your vision? So in a perfect world, <laughs> it was my world, right? I think that we should break the specialty up into tracks so that we would have people who would focus just on the office, similar, similar to what internal medicine has done, right? I think we should have people who would focus just on the surgical aspect of it. And then I think we should have people who should focus just on the um, obstetric portion and labor and delivery. So labor and delivery management. That I think would be in the physician and the patient's best interest. I can imagine, you know, just having heard so many stories or seen so many examples of, of women who want and, and families who want to have the same physician or clinician track with them throughout their pregnancy into birth and even some of the postpartum care. How do you manage that uh, if you're tracking those folks? How do you make sure that that feels like a cohesive experience for people and that they're not feeling like they're handed off to somebody anonymous? Right. So first, I would say a lot of the very small practices have gone by the wayside, right? Most of the practices now are either owned by hospitals or they're owned by large multi-specialty clinics. So the practices are very large and the the patients are rotating through, mm. a, you know, a certain number of physicians during the whole pregnancy. So if the physicians in the office explain to their patients that the physicians in the hospital are part of that practice, but they specialize only in, you know, being in the hospital and the ones in the office specialize only being in the, in the office. It helps the patient to understand they work together. They work as a team. You know, the office folks trust the hospital folks and the hospital folks trust the office folks that end to be able to say to a mom, listen, you don't have to worry that I'm going to be doing your C-section at two o'clock in the morning when I was in the OR all day. Right. Right. Or, um, you don't have to worry that, I'm going to be a full day of office patients, so I might not get there in time for your delivery. But my partner who's in the hospital never, never leaves, never leaves. Right. They'll, they'll take care of you. So I think it's in how it's messaged to women. And I think that's important. I mean, any team-based care is going to have that um, critical importance, first of all, of those, those colleagues actually knowing one another and being collegial and understanding and being able to do that managing up process, but then also that... Uh, that that process starts from the beginning, that that's the expectation. So women aren't um, finding out somehow late in the process that that's the way that it works and that it is, in fact, as you say, in their best interest in terms of safety, in terms of knowing who's, who's there is the right person to be there and that sort of thing. Um, so it comes down to communication there. I like that. 
Uh, but, but also what you're advocating is a pretty fundamental change to how obstetric medicine is currently trained, practiced, and supported. What kinds of changes in, in leadership and, and education will it take to make these changes a reality? Yes, yeah, so I think that thought should be given to how the residency is provided, right? If we're going to keep the residency the length that it currently is, you know, maybe some thought should be given to having the first year be rotate like you would, you know, do office, do OR, do labor and delivery. And then at the end of that year, people can step forward and say, you know what, my love is surgery or mm. my love is outpatient medicine, or I really like obstetrics and that's where I want to stay. So I want to stay, you know, in the hospital doing the deliveries. And then once that is declared, the, the remaining three years of the residency can be used to focus and hone specifically those skills, right? So if it's surgery, your surgical numbers will be great. If it's in the office, you're trained to make sure you're staying current on the latest pap smear guidelines and the latest mm -hmm. STI guidelines and, you know, the latest prenatal care. And if you're trained specifically in obstetrics, then you are perfectly positioned to really manage anything that's going to walk in the door because you're there all the time versus someone who's trying to do a third, a third, a third, right? And then something walks through the door and they haven't been on labor and delivery enough to have seen that, to be able yeah. to serve that woman well. Yeah. So from, so from the training perspective, it needs um, leaders willing to step forward and, and look at that differently. And I think it's, it's important to note, you know, there's a precedent for this, right? Like it used to be that primary care doctors did and in some places they still do, but in most places now, instead of working in their offices and then rounding on patients in the hospital, they're handing over to hospitalists who are managing that for uh, med surge kind of cases. And, and so, so there is a precedent for this. What about once, um, you know, once somebody has tracked into those different tracks, what looks different in terms of, you know, again, thinking about burnout as one of the issues that this is addressing, but burnout and, and patient safety um, you've mentioned the training, you've mentioned the familiarity. What does it mean in terms of thinking about career tracks? I mean, one of the things that has happened is primary care um, tends to be lower paid, sometimes undervalued. Is there a risk of that same kind of thing happening uh, for the office-based ob obstetrics folks versus those doing surgery versus those in, in the hospital? And how do we guard against that? That's a great question. I would think that the compensation right should be commensurate with the risk you assume. So understandably, if you take the office only position, your risk is going to be slightly lower than your partners who choose the surgical route or the obstetric route, right? Um, so that should be taken into account very definitely. Um, but I also think that too frequently when people evaluate, for example, a hospitalist role now for labor and delivery, because it is fairly still new in its development, they're trying to compare apples to oranges, right? Mm. So when they look at what the compensation is, they say, well, I make X dollars in my current full scope practice. And you're saying that I should earn, you know, maybe less, maybe more, depending upon how much you commit to as a hospitalist. And I think that we need to make sure that the residents that are coming out are educated to that, right? right. If you assume the higher risk, you are likely to wind up with a higher compensation. If you assume the lower risk, you're still going to make a great living, but it's not going to be maybe the same as the guy who's doing surgery four days a week, you know? Right. Kind of 
Right. No, and that, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, what you're advocating is as all of this moves forward, transparency and clear communication is critical both on the patient family side and on the clinician side in order that people are not coming out of, of training and feeling like there's something they didn't understand or something they could have chosen differently um, and had a different experience, which, of course, the mismatch or, or match between experience and expectations is part of what leads to um, to burnout or at least frustration as, as a potential um, component of it. And I think even if you want to, sorry. In a, in a minute, no, no, go ahead. Please. If you want to take a step even further back and step even further away from just obstetrics, right? We have these kids graduating from medical schools with tremendous debt hmm. who want to serve society. So then they kind of are backed into a corner where they have to get a job that they'll be able to pay that debt off at some time before they die, you know, and yeah. so if we could figure out a way to subsidize medical education more, because people who choose medicine want to serve, they want to help people, whether, you know, whatever specialty you go into, it's what they want. Um, and the fact that that has become that medical education has become big business is a problem. Yeah, which is a subject for a whole separate podcast I know, I know. <laughs> one of these days. No, but, but I appreciate you bringing it up because actually on this podcast, we don't talk a lot about the financial elements and how that, that changes both personal experience and practice experience. And, and it is an important part of the, the conversation and one that, um, that I will look for some future episodes to see if we can uh, jump into it in a way that's thoughtful and adds to the dialogue. So I appreciate you going there. Um, as you look ahead, so so you're part of a hospitalist group, so you've got experience managing in this kind of model. And actually, before we, we jump ahead, um, I'd love for you to describe just a little bit about what what it looks like when in Virginia, where you have put this model together, what's the, what does it feel like on the clinician side? And then what are you hearing from patients and families about what it's like to, to receive care in this model? Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, I just so everyone's clear, I practice in Virginia, but our company is actually like that we are doing this nationwide. It's not right. just in Virginia, but um, so I chose to step away from private practice about eight years ago um, because I, I had hit that wall, right? And it was either pick a different career or try something different. And I actually had a friend who had made that, who had taken that leap of faith before me, who called and said, Hey, listen you know, there's an opportunity if you want to try it, let's see, you know, how it goes. And I, and I took that opportunity and I will tell you that for the past eight years, I have never looked back. My children have been happier. My spouse has been happier. I've been happier at home, right? I've had more time with them. Um, and I think that people are fearful of, you know, th there's a common misconception that if you become a hospitalist, you're going to be viewed through the same lens as a locum's which is all another thing, right? There's right. plenty of people who are doing locums now just because they want to control their schedule. It's got nothing to do with they couldn't make it in private, right. practice, which right. is a horrible you know, label that goes along with them. Um, so I think that for the patients, I mean, the longer you're in one site, the more of that same family you see. So, right. you know, in years at my current site, I've delivered second and third babies of the same women who know me when they come in, which is no different than what it was in private practice. You know, right. um, we focus a lot of time and energy on building the relationships with the community providers so that they are comfortable with us 
and they're comfortable telling their patients you're in capable hands. I know these people, I work with them every day, you know, that kind of thing. And for patient satisfaction, I think that the majority of patients appreciate and understand the, this doctor is here. They don't leave the building. If something, God forbid, goes south, you will be attended to immediately. There's not going to be wait 15 minutes for someone to get there from the office or wait 30 minutes for someone to finish in the OR. It's a team approach. And that team approach is what provides the best care, right? Yeah. And it's the community docs, helps the patients and helps the hospitalists. Did that answer your question? I hope that answered it. It did. Yeah, it did. And I think I think one of the reasons I wanted to get your personal perspective is as we talked about in in the prep for this, um, one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation is that a lot of the conversations around burnout um, sort of poke around the edges of um, of how care is provided or uh, providing support within the existing care model. And this is, while it's not a radical departure in that other specialties have done it, it is a pretty fundamental change to the way the work is delivered. And I, and I think that's something we need to be ready, willing, and able to consider. And so I wanted that firsthand perspective. And so now, now I will ask you to look ahead, you know, over the next year or two years, as you think about you know, how conversations about clinician burnout and well-being can and should change, whether that's, you know, looking at work-life balance, looking at how training is delivered, looking at the burden of debt or what have you, what, what are your hopes for how that conversation will change and, and what kind of leadership will it take to get there? Strong leaders, right, who are willing to say it's time. I, I think it's vulnerability, right? It's mm. the ability to say, Yes, what we've been doing has been good, but it could be better, right? And we all know it. We can all look and see what the, the risks have been, what the errors have been, where have the missteps been. And I think it's the ability to step forward and say, we can avoid that, right? Mm -hmm. And now, especially with you know more hospitals choosing to close their birthing centers, um, we have to be able to think outside the box. How are we still going to serve, you know, those moms in the maternal deserts? How are we going to be able to get these services to those people? And it may be that, you know, you have to consider, okay, the clinic is 60 miles away from the hospital, but if we have, you know, a hospitalist team, they are present, that woman doesn't have to drive 60 miles for a delivery, right? We have mm -hmm. to figure out how to get the care to the people and stop expecting the people to come to where the care is, because that's just not realistic. Not everyone has the resources to be able to do that, right? So I think, honestly, it all boils down to the ability to stand up and say, it's time to make it better, right? Just like we stood up and did it for residency and we said, this is how we protect patients. That's what we need to do moving forward for women who are not in a residency clinic, who are with, you know, private practices outside of the outside of that protected educational zone. Yeah, well, and then also the flip side of that being creating choices for clinicians and rising clinicians so that um, they can they can choose whichever pathway makes sense for them. If they're if they want to devote, you know, more time and energy to delivering care, they have the possibility of doing that. And if they want a different kind of work-life balance that doesn't preclude them from pursuing advancement, from being ex excellent in what they do and still finding that, that balance with family or again, whatever interests outside of work matter for them. Yes, very definitely, very definitely. 
Well, I appreciate you sharing this perspective. And again, um, perhaps there's a future episode maybe between the two of us or, or someone else around the whole uh, finance question. But I still think uh, it's really important to be looking at models that, that shift some of our core assumptions about what work looks like for clinical care team members um, and even non-clinical care team members in order to create a sustainable system that isn't burning out clinicians at a higher rate almost than it's creating them. Agreed, 100%. And we'll have people who are available to take care of these patients for a longer period of time. You know, yeah. we, we need better shelf life than what we currently <laughs> have. <so. laughs> yes, and sustainable shelf life, not just a whole mess of preservatives that, that create some artificial stasis. Absolutely. I like that analogy. Well, thank you again for your time and your insights. And thank you for the care you're providing to your patients in your community. Thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, I hope I hope it's insightful for folks who listen. If you enjoyed this episode of the Caring Greatly podcast, please subscribe and rate us on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher. For links related to Dr. Vakovic's podcast, go to www.vocera.com slash podcast and click on her episode. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of Vocera, now part of Stryker. This is Liz Bohm, Executive Strategist for Human-Centered Research at Vocera. Thank you for caring greatly. Thank you.